and does what he says, and craziness breaks out. And we watch it, and we watch how God walks with him through these things, and we're not supposed to look at it and say, man, that's interesting for Abram. We're supposed to look and understand this is the very same thing God is summoning us to in the Christian life. So the Christian life is just like this. What happens if you trust God and obey his word? Answer, who can tell? Who can tell? This text shows us what happens when the triune God of the Bible calls you and me and Abram into covenant fellowship with himself and you take the bait. You get on the ride and he straps you in and there's no turning back. You just have to endure, okay? So I'm gonna show you several things from, uh, from this text that are pretty, pretty amazing. The first one, I just wanna show you the risky obedience that God um, required of Abraham. The risky obedience, by the way, when, uh, when you're talking about obedience, a good definition of obedience is doing what someone says right away, all the way, with a happy heart, okay? So like in the Martin home, we have to work on this quite a bit uh, right now. Like, hey, go do this, and it gets done, but it's not right away. It's only halfway, and it's with a grumbly heart. Not all the time. Our, uh, we're normally uh, a little more obedient than that, but that's the idea. Risky obedience. So, you see all of this command. God is gonna. God says, "I'm gonna. I want you to go to the land that I'm gonna show you, and I promise to do all these things." In the verse four, it says, "So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran." By the way, this kind of a parenthetical statement here. The life of Abram, he has seventy-five years in Ur with his dad. He has 25 years in the promised land without Isaac, and then he has 75 years in the promised land with Isaac. There's a symmetry to his life. We say, well, what does that mean? I don't know. But with Moses, it's the same way. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in um, with, with um, Midian, 40 years in Midian, and then he comes back in 40 years leading Israel. Well, why is there symmetry? I don't know. But something that we can learn from this is that from our perspective in life, right, you've you got a, a timeline that is your life, and it's this thread, and you can only ever be on one point. You can look back and remember as much as you can, but you can't hold all of your past in your mind at the same time, nor can you know what's coming in the future, and your circumstances, you're sort of blinded by those things. And then you get to the end of your life, and when we see Christ, we'll be able to pan back and see how your particular thread, how he was working that into the tapestry of his work global historic to glorify his son Jesus and we'll say that makes a lot of sense now now that I can see it and so Abram's life I, I doubt he was thinking when he's doing these things man there's such a symmetry and a control to my life it looks pretty chaotic but it turns out God was walking with him and was shaping his his years just like he did with Moses and just like he does with you and with me I do not doubt that when we die and see Jesus, he's going to show us our life and we're going to say, there is some symmetry and some beauty there I have no idea about. So he takes all of his, uh, uh, he takes Abram uh, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran. So they all preach a sermon on slavery in the Bible. Uh, it's not going to be today. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, 
Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Okay? Uh, pop quiz. Like, who were, who were the Canaanites? So God says, I want you to go to this land that, that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to give you land, seed, and blessing. And so Abram shows up, and he looks around, and we're told that Canaanites were in the land. Well, a good um, indication of what Canaanites were like, if you remember the story of Lot, when two angels left Abram's presence, Abraham's presence, and went in to see uh, what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, those were Canaanites. And what did they do? Well, the men of the town came to Lot's door, and they demanded, send out the two men that we saw go in there, because we want to know them. The way Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived and bore a son. We want to know those guys that way. And they're about to tear the door down to get into those guys. That's what you and I should hear when we say that, when we read that Abraham got to the land that God is going to show him and say to your offspring and get this land. And the Canaanites were there. It would be like reading that, that Abraham showed up and there were cannibals there. Or there were the drug cartels. It's this... Chaos that, that you can't control. You have no protection here. It would be like showing up and Abram is told Gavin Newsom is governor here. It's like craziness. Like we don't want to be there where there's chaos. But this is where the Lord uh, leads Abram. So I just want you to see this. The Christian life really does come down to our positioning towards the word of God. Okay. Abram hears from God. He doesn't know what it all looks like, but he obeys, and he shows up in this really risky situation. And all of these things are downstream from his, from his decision to obey. So obedience to the Word of God always feels risky, but listen to me. Obedience to the Word of God is the only thing that is not risky. It's the only way that you can live life without any sort of risk at all, because ultimately, it's not a risk. To obey. I think it was uh, Jim Elliott, right? He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Every, something's going to kill all of us. And so we try to live uh, to just preserve life at all costs. When in, in actuality, what we should do is we should live to obey, to believe and to obey the word of God. And sometimes, most of the time, that's going to feel pretty risky. I'm going to show you something else about the, the life of faith. It is always contrary. The life of faith is always contrary to what our eyes can see. Watch this. Abraham passes through, verse 6. Abraham passes through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites, the bad guys, were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. Okay? So a good definition of faith, the working definition of faith, faith is believing the Bible is true when I do not feel like the Bible is true, okay? So Abram shows up to this place, and the Canaanites fill this land. And then God shows, at, it's, it's like it reads as like, as Abram is looking over this land, and he's seeing all these Canaanites, that God shows up while he's looking and says, this is the land that I'm going to give to your offspring. Now, Abram might have... Two really important questions here. Number one, God, what offspring are you talking about? I'm 75 years old, and my wife and I have been participating in the birds and the bees for quite some time, and we have no children. And you're talking about offspring? Like, 
my eyes can't see what your word is promising. What offspring? And then secondly, to your offspring, I will give this land that Abram might look around and say, God, this land is filled with pagans. How are you ever going to give it to me and to my offspring? Right? Faith always runs contrary to what our eyes can see. Think about the temptation of Jesus. Right? He's baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And what was the message that the Father said over him? This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the text says that he is led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. And the first words out of the devil's mouth is, were, was, I don't know. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Notice he doesn't say you should turn these stones to bread, you're hungry. He says, if you're the Son of God, meaning... Look, Jesus, at your circumstances and then measure it by what your father just said. That, that you're his son and he's pleased with you? Does he let his son starve to death? And so he's saying disbelieve and just do. Take these things into your own hands and measure them out. But Jesus was no fool. He understood that faith has an element of being contrary to the circumstances that we see. By the way, how did Jesus answer that temptation? Did he say, no, I'm not going to do that? No, he said, man, uh, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father. Right? So he's, Jesus is saying, I'm going to trust my Father's word regardless of what my eyes are telling me. Okay? Um, we, can, we can apply that same standard to New Testament doctrine and ideology. A lot of times, because when you read the book of Acts, it's, so, it's a slow progression, right? And so we see like all of these minor developments, but sometimes when we when we hear um, like the Great Commission, Jesus says, go disciple, make disciples of all nations, all authorities mine, go disciple the nations, and we think, man, that's an impossible task. And then we turn to the book of Acts and we see eleven guys who have yet to receive the Holy Spirit. They don't even know that the Gentiles are included in this game. That's how far behind they are in the times of what we know. And there's 11 of them, and they're in an upper room, and they're waiting. The Spirit falls on them. So, so you've, got, you've got 11 guys, 72 people right there in the beginning. And at the end of the book of Acts, just pair the beginning and the end, you see Paul in Rome, freely speaking, unhindered about the kingdom of God. He's in the capital of the known world, and he's taking ground for Christ. And by the way, before he got there, he wrote to that church. And he said in Romans, I think it's Romans 15, he said, having no uh, room for work in these regions, I hope to see you in passing on my way to Spain. Well, these regions that he's talking about is Israel, is Asia Minor, and Greece. And Paul says, I've saturated this place with the gospel. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no further work here, and so I'm going to see you Romans in passing on my way to Spain. What does all that mean? It means that when Jesus said... Go disciple the nations. It comes to us. It ought to sound to us a lot like this word to Abram. To your offspring, I will give this land. Did God keep this word or did he not? You bet he did. Will he keep his word to us? Go disciple the nations. And we say, it's full of pagans. Trust me and obey. The promises of God always run contrary to what our eyes can see. Okay. Verse 9 and 10, I want to show you the promise of problems. 
Okay? What is it when God commands you to go and, and we obey? What are we in for? And the answer is problems. Look in verse 8. From there, Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the, on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The Negev literally means the, the south country or the dry country. And it says in verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. That's great news. God sent, God sent Abram from a land, Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means the land between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's the two cradles of civilization, of human civilization, were Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates, and Egypt, the, the, um, the ground on the Nile. That's where civilization had its birthplace, those, uh, those two places. And God sends Abram from wild fertility, wild like um, productivity, a steady source of food and culture and all of those things. He sends him through Canaan, which is a land that it has a river, but it's not uh, – it's, um, its agriculture depends upon rainfall. And now he's going to go uh, – because there's a famine there, he's going to go all the way to Egypt. And so there's these problems that Abraham is going to have to encounter because he's trusting the Lord and doing what God says. And this, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful metaphor for the Christian life. That, that God doesn't say, Abram, I want you to go to the place where things are established and controlled, where you can, you can know ahead of time where your water is going to come from, where your fruitfulness is going to come from. God sends Abram to a place that's needy, a place that is going to be um, completely every day surrendered to the fact that if God doesn't cause it to rain, we're all going to die. That's the problem of the Christian life. You remember, those of you who came to know Christ late in life, or those who grew up in the church, and you remember in, in college those seasons where the Lord got a hold of you and you're, uh, you're passionate and zealous for Christ, and you remember what it was like, just the sweetness of, of knowing yourself to be forgiven of your sin, loved by God, sealed with the spirit of a member of the body of Christ, uh, sent by him into the world to count and to make, uh, to make a difference. And you're just extremely zealous and joyful. And then you fall into porn or drunkenness or immorality or greed or bitterness. And we would raise our hands and say, why, God? Why are you? I want to be faithful. And there's all these problems coming to me. Why is this the case? Well, in the life of faith, God intentionally calls us to impossibilities so that we can learn to trust his power. Okay? With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God, listen to me, on purpose puts you in impossible situations. So, would you like an impossible command? Go disciple the nations. Anybody who says, sure, I'm, I'm on it, has not understood what's being commanded. He's commanded us to high and terrible things, amazing things. And, he, and he's going to do it through his own power. And so, here Abraham is, uh, is going through from one fertile country to another country, and he's passing through the dry place that's been given to him so that he can learn dependence upon God. Okay. Uh, this is perhaps going to be, uh, um, get me burned at the stake here, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. In verse 11, what you're going to see is unavoidable patriarchy. Okay. Listen, uh, listen in verse 11. I'm going to tell you to stop reading. I just want you to, to think on this with me. In verse 11. 
When Abram was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai his wife, I know that you are a beautiful, that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, time out, gentlemen. You know what this is, right? This is showing up at the door with flowers because you know you've done it wrong. Like you, there, there's something going on. Abram is about to ask her for something terrible. And so he starts off with buttering her up. I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And then he says in verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now stop reading for a moment. What should we read Abraham saying next? Do you know? He, he, he tells his wife, there's this problem. I've got this fear that you're beautiful and your beauty is actually going to cause me harm. Because we're going to get there and they're going to say, oh, she's beautiful. Let's kill her husband and then we'll have her. We would expect Abram, the father of our faith, to say, this is true. You're beautiful. They're going to probably want to kill me and take you. But God promised I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth should be, will be blessed. We would expect Abram, the father of the faith, to say, look, it's really scary, but let's trust the Lord. This is the word. Let's, let's hold fast. Let's do what God has told us. And let's move forward. Okay? That's not what Abraham says. What Abram says. Look what he actually says. Verse 13, you say you are my sister, which, by the way, was half true. Abram, uh, they shared a father and they had different mothers. You can bomb if you want to. Uh, but I think that was typical back then. So he says, say you are my sister. Um, one of my favorite professors at DTS used to say, the half truth told is a whole truth is a whole lie. <laughs> say you're my sister. It's true enough. Yeah. But it's. Truth that's half truth to conceal real truth. Say you are my sister. Why? Why, Abram? Why, Abram? Why do you want me to say that I'm your sister? Well, notice he says two things. That it may go well with me because of you. I want you to lie and to put yourself in harm's way so that it would be a blessing to me. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Do you see that? Because of you, for your sake. So Abram, instead of, instead of trusting God, using God's word as a shield to guard he and his wife, he's using his wife as a shield to guard him from his fearful circumstances. Brothers and sisters, we are always this way. So gentlemen, when, our, when fear causes us to forget God's word, our wives will always suffer. They will always suffer. Watch what happens. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians, sure as shooting, they saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when, um, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And just as Abram wanted, listen, for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And Abram had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So this, the father of our faith, when he's presented with, with really hard circumstances, and listen to me, they're really hard. There's a famine in the land that 
God has told him to go to. So he has to flee to Egypt where there's food. He has no protection, no standing, no, um, no, nobody that's going to protect him other than God. And so he uses, he gains the system, uses his wife as a shield to protect him from harm. Okay? And she suffers for it. Listen to me. We are a church that glories in how God made man in his image, male and female. And we're a church that glories in how he has commanded men to lead in the home and in the church. God forbid that we should uh, be the type of church that would command our women to submission when we give our men a pass on the command to love as Christ loved. Okay? Wives, submit to your husbands and everything. Uh, as the church submits to Christ, as, as, the, as Christ is head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife. And there are churches that will rail on those things and will never, to, to women, and then they will never tell the men that their job is to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which is going to be more costly than we could ever imagine. Right? So there's, in our, in, in the church in America, you fall into one of two ditches. One is the, just the general dismissal of gender roles in the church, right? Um, we had a recent conversation, and, and uh, it's like, hey, when Paul says, he's writing to Timothy about how one should conduct himself in the household of God in the church, which is the household of God, pillar and buttress of the truth, this is how I want things done in the church. And he says, right in the context, before he talks about officers in the church, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the local body. And we are in a church in, in America that the vast majority would say, well, what Paul actually means when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over, over a man, what he actually means is, I do allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Right? So we, you, you fall into one of two ditches, either into the one side that just dismisses those things as it's all cultural, even though he appealed to the one time in human history where culture didn't factor in at the birth of Adam and Eve, the, the order of Adam and Eve, how God created them. He appeals to that, so you've got that ditch. And then you've got the other ditch that where people will take uh, the commands of God's word seriously and husbands will rail against and shame their wives for not being submissive, all the while forgetting that there's two commands there, one to wives in Ephesians 5, one to wives and one to husbands, that husbands are to love their wives. And to give themselves for their wives so that she, our, our wives, might flourish. Okay? So, I just want... I, we don't want to be in either ditch. We don't want to disregard the Word of God. Nor do we want to be so harsh that we would yell and rail at women uh, and, and at our wives. And not ourselves be in submission to the Word of God for us to be a guard and a protection for our wives. Um, it's, it's extremely important that we would understand that. So, uh, if you're a husband, let, let me remind you of this too. If you're a husband, there's no command. You can search the scriptures in vain to find a command that husbands ensure that your wives are submitting to you. It's not there. It's not there. Do you know why it's not there? Because submission can't be something that's taken. It can only ever be something that's given or it doesn't count. If I want Gracie to do something and I twist her arm and she does it, does that count as submission? The answer is no. No. It, it's not. It's certainly not beautiful and I should go to jail and be beat 
by her dad with a whip. He's here. It's got to be freely. It's got to be freely given. So every single time the scriptures talk about a wife submitting to her husband, there's a, there's, there's a direct address to the wife. You submit yourselves. It's, it's between her and the Lord. If she's not submitting to you, you cannot rail against her. You cannot force it. Don't preach. Just pray for her. And you, gentlemen, worry about your command to love her as Christ loved the church and see if that uh, doesn't change things in your home. Okay? Now, it's amazing. The father of our faith uses his wife as a shield. Look at verse, thir uh, verse 16, and let's see the end of his scheme. For her sake, for the sake of Sarai, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and Abram got sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Right? He is, he is blessed by Pharaoh because of Sarai, his wife. Uh, it is normal in the Christian life, at least in America, um, for us to do these things. And so let me, before we move on, let me ask a question. How would you expect God to break into this situation here? Uh, there's something true in the Christian life that a lot of us, if we were to take an exam on points of doctrine, we would do really well. But when it comes to our feeling of the Christian life, like what's actually uh, how, we, how we live, what we expect, um, if I were going to answer, not the Sunday school answer, which I know because our prayer instead of the text. If you were to ask me, hey, there's this guy who claims to love and obey God, and then he uses his wife as a shield, and he benefits monetarily, financially, from her being taken into the harem of a pagan king. What do you think God is going to say to that guy? I'm going to say something about fire, like lightning bolts, or cursing, or raging. God is certainly going to show up and say, Abram, how dare you? I need to show you the bias of covenant. Look what happens. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. Wait, wait, wait. We couldn't have understood that right. It's the Lord came and afflicted <coughs> Abram. Because Abram is the one that sinned. Pharaoh has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. To take, a, to take an immigrant, a foreigner that has no standing, and to bring her into your home is not a wrong. It's a, it's a generosity in this day and age. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. It's amazing. Abram is getting, like, so Sarai becomes like the, um, the catalyst. Abram's getting blessed by Pharaoh because of Sarai, his wife. And Pharaoh is getting cursed by God because of Sarai, Abram's wife. It's a really interesting irony there. And it's interesting to me that God shows up without a rebuke to Abram, but with a curse against Pharaoh. Okay, so we hate words like privilege, favoritism, bias, discrimination, and segregation. But right here, one man is in the right and one man is in the wrong. And the right man, but the one in the right is not in covenant relationship with God. And the one who's in the wrong is. One of them gets blessed and one of them gets cursed. What's the difference? It's not obedience. It's not who's right, who's wrong. God is looking at two men. He's saying, one of them is my ally who I promised. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And that man has your wife. And so 
he's going to be cursed. Okay? The, the one outside of covenant with God gets cursed. Um, listen, listen to what how Pharaoh responds. It's really amazing. This happens again, by the way. But in verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. The, the, um, the Hebrew grammar here is just stacked. Uh, Pharaoh is royally miffed. And he wants Abram gone out. Like, take your wife and go. So that the Lord will quit, uh, will quit these plagues on me. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning Abram. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So with Abram as our example, we need to see that one of the key tenets of the Christian life <coughs> is that while obedience is really important, listen to me, brothers and sisters, obedience is really important. But ultimately, the question is not about obedience or disobedience. The question is about covenant union with Christ or not. That's what the question is. If you are in Christ... You are blessed indeed, and even your disobediences will end in blessing. What happens to a covenant member of God's household who goes rogue and who disobeys? God disciplines them for their good so that they may become holy. But think for a moment about those outside of Christ. Even their righteousness becomes a curse against them. If you're in Christ, you're blessed indeed, and even your disobediences will end in blessing. Outside of Christ, even your good deeds will become a curse. The question is not obedience or lack thereof. It's are you in covenant union with God, like it or not? Let me pray for us and then I'll prep us for communion. Father, we, um, you have summoned us to many of the same things that you summoned Abraham to, particularly to irrevocable fellowship and covenant with you. And our obedience matters in that if we, you, you, desire, Lord, to bless us that we may be a blessing to others. But if in our passivity, in our effeminacy, we fail to trust you, that it becomes a curse to those on the outside who may well be intending good. Because you intend to bless the world through your church. Jesus, you said that you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But if we get afraid because of all the Canaanites in the land, or we get afraid because of the power of of Pharaoh, the Lord of the, the Lord of the current structure. We get afraid. And we use the people that we're supposed to be protecting. We use them as our shield. Um, God, help us to see that that doesn't mean you break covenant with us. It is, a, it is a way not only to fail in loving those that are ours to love and to protect, but it's also a failure to love our neighbors. Pharaoh should have been treated differently here. So we thank you, Lord, for these, for these pictures, these strange, surprising pictures that you would be faithful to Abram, even here. Help us, Lord, to see that. Help us to trust that. Help us to rejoice in that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Christ, God has sworn to you, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Which means that we owe it to our neighbors and to our world to walk faithfully and before our God. Our obedience will spell blessing for all men everywhere. Our cowardly disobedience and passivity will surely bring about the Lord's displeasure on the nations.
So as we come to the table of remembrance, we need to remember who Christ has been for us. He's the one in whom all the nations will be blessed. He is the one we are in covenant with, and in him all the promises of God are yes to us. So the blessing of this table does not come by way of your obedience or mine. If you have disobeyed, come anyway. You should repent for sure, but your imperfection does not nullify the fact that this table is the covenant blessings of Christ meant for the disobedient and the wayward. If you trash talk your mama, you're still welcome to come to the dinner table. Now you may need to say you're sorry and kiss her on the cheek, but she, if she was any mother at all, she had you in mind when she was cooking and setting the table because she's a good mama, even when you were a bad boy. And this is all metaphor. Abe muffed it. Yet God kept his word to bless him and to oppose his enemies. How much more, now that Christ has covered our sin with his blood and rules from heaven, how much more will he keep covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations for those who fear him and keep his word? Your eyes may tell you a different story, but God's word cannot be revoked. He has given you everything in Christ. So come be glad. Come be received. Come be blessed. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, as we come to the table, eating and drinking in remembrance of faith, um, we pray that you would cause Christ, Christ to be present with us, that you would impart those things that he bought for us in his life of obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension. Holy Spirit, that you would come and, and renew us in covenant unity with him. Restore to us, Lord, the joy of our salvation, the fact that you spoke covenant promises to us to forgive, to redeem, to empower, to love, and to bless for eternity. Give us joy, Lord, as we come to the table. Help us to celebrate. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.